Hi, I'm Liz. I'm a covenant member here at SOMA. Um, today our scripture is Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 through 14. It's on page 812 in your black Bibles. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate that is wide and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Hey again, I'm Kent. I didn't say that last time, so my name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. And happy Mother's Day to, now as you know, I actually mean that pretty liberally to all the women in the room, uh, in the church. Uh, but yeah, particularly uh, if you are a, a physical mother, grandmother uh, here with us, um, just more and more seeing what, how my wife serves our family and serves our kids. Uh, you really are, um, I, I don't mean this in a, in a sappy, cloying way, really just heroic to me um, because you really get a demonstrate love in a really visceral way. And uh, uh, I'm very appreciative of that in my family, and I'm very appreciative of that for all who step into that role. Let me pray, and we'll jump into this text. Father God, Lord, I, I pray for you to do what you would do this morning, because you have, like you have so many times in this sermon, your great sermon, um, brought us to a point of inner reflection and a point of decision. Because ultimately, you are not just a teaching to be entertained that will stimulate our interest for a second and then pass by like some other random podcast or blog article or, or bit from the news. But you are telling good news of a kingdom that's coming with the intention to bring us to decide if we would be part of it or not. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do the work of bringing us to that point. Do the work of allowing us who have said, hey, I've decided that, that is behind me, to do the work of examining where we find ourselves between these two options that you lay out. Lord, I pray that you would not seem reductionistic in this moment, but rather seem clear, which is, I think, your intention. And, Lord, you would not remove the weight where there needs to be weight, but you would not put extra burdens on those who are just seeking to find a way that they can submit more to, to fight harder, which is a good desire, but sometimes can be just a point of forgetting the fact that they are loved in grace and they are brought into the kingdom by a father who loves them, not one who is always looking over his shoulder, being like, how can you get on the narrower road and get through the narrower gate? But rather says, hey, just come to me. My burden is light. So Lord, uh, we are excited to see what you might do at this time. And we give it to you. I pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar, well, you probably are, with the basic idea of, I think it's a mathematical, maybe a geometry term. Uh, let me see, I want to make sure I get this right. 
all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. My math people, is that generally right? I'm getting, I'm getting affirmation, so I'm going to go with it. Um, and that is meant to bring you to an idea that everything in one category can fit in some, but sometimes the, that, that's the bigger category. The bigger category is rectangles. You can fit everything in there. A smaller, more specific category is squares, right? You can't fit all of whatever has four sides in there. And similarly, I'm going to add kind of like, or use that framework to talk about what I see Jesus doing here this morning. And that is all warnings are also invitations. But not all invitations are warnings. Right? I mean, not every invitation you get. Like there's sometimes where you're just like, hey, you are invited to our wedding and our reception. And it usually doesn't end with or else. You know, like, or I, like don't miss it or we'll remember it forever and be bitter about it. Though that actually sometimes does happen, whatever. Uh, but still, it's, it's generally not the point of the invitation. But a warning is always inviting you to, to avoid what they are warning you from. And that is if it's sincere. Because there's lots of warnings that aren't sincere. They're more like threats. They're more like the sense of that is the or else. But if it's someone who actually cares about you, if it's someone who actually loves you, and they are putting before you a warning, it's not just to say, hey, so be fearful of the future, but rather I invite you to avoid that of which I'm warning you of. And there are no more sincere warnings than warnings of parents. I am deep into that with our boys right now of just discipline and talking with them and it goes beyond talking to them getting what we call a discipline. And there are many times right now, particularly probably with our our middle child, Esmond, who just got a big boy bed and is learning to stay in it, that I am coming to him regularly And I tell him very clearly, if you stay in your big boy bed, you will receive no disciplines this evening. It's a kind of a simplistic statement. There's a lot of other things to do to garner a discipline, but whatever. At this point, I'm just trying to focus on the clarity. But if you get out of your bed, you will receive this many disciplines. And it tends to graduate every single time we have to come back to this point. And then after a point of discipline, I look at him and I say to him two clear statements. Daddy loves you. And because daddy loves you, and it's always an and, it's not a daddy loves you but. That's, I think, a fallacy that I try to work out of my language. It's not a huge deal, but it's a big deal because language does matter. It's not daddy loves you, but I have to discipline you. It's daddy loves you. And so, therefore, daddy will not let you grow to be a disobedient man, to be one who does not see him as under authority and see himself as being out for his self-interest alone. And then I'll follow it up. Hey, there's, you can go back and you can obey and you can avoid all future discipline. Or next time it's two. And it goes on from there. And point being, That because I sincerely love my son, because I only want good for him, that though I am very much so warning him of death and destruction, 
on a small minor sense, but still very real, particularly to him. And it is even going to potentially come from my hand. It is a sincere invitation for him to avoid what is more harmful for him, which is allowing sin to continue to distort his soul and the view of the world. And that's really what we have here this morning is both a warning and a discipline in our text, particularly verses 13 and 14. I I am going to get into verse 12, but I got to admit, I feel like if we would have broke these a different way, I would have made these two sermons. But uh, I I am going to get into that. I think there is a good point that 12 can tie into what we're doing, but I'm really going to be spending a bulk of our time this morning, 13 and 14. And it's this image that, that Jesus gives of entering by a narrow gate versus a wide gate that has an easy path. And Jesus is being very clear here. In fact, he's being so clear, he's broken this all up into dualities, which is, it's either this way or that way. I mean, you can see just all throughout this, the, the, uh, the scripture, the thir- two verses, I believe you see four, possibly five dualities. You see uh, both groups entering, but you see either narrow or a wide entrance. You see either a hard or an easy road. You see uh, then following out that they would either lead to destruction or life, and that there will be few that find one and many that find the other. It's all the way out. You can lace them together. Here is this level of dualities, and it's paired against this level of dualities, breaking out into binary situations. And Jesus isn't trying to be overly simplistic. He's not like just sitting there like trying to like say, oh, well, the world really just comes down to one simple choice, either this one or that one, red pill or blue pill, and then you go on from there. But rather, Jesus is trying to be clear. And he's doing a teaching technique that sometimes, even though there's tons of mess and gray and nuance in this life, because there is, and the Bible is no stranger to it. If you, you cannot read this, and assume that, oh man, everything's black and white in here. It doesn't present itself as such. But there are moments where Jesus is simply going to say, hey, let's just zoom out for a minute, and let's just treat it in a real simple way. Ultimately, all your decisions, all of the ways and the paths and the things that you do in life can be very simply categorized. One is going through a narrow gate on a hard road that leads to life, and few find that. And the other is very wide, very easy. It will destroy you, and many find themselves there. Hard words. And I want to get into why what Jesus is doing, and actually I think it's a lot more beautiful than sometimes we can like put it into a, a, oh, that's just like the uh, things that we don't like about Jesus. We really love to treat others as yourself. Like, that's the Jesus. Like, that's, you know, like, I feel like Ricky Bobby right now. That's the Jesus I like. But the Jesus that then goes on right after those very words and says, hey, there is a narrow, narrow, narrow gate. No one loves narrow. One of the most unpopular words of our culture right now. And so I want to get into actually why this is a lot more beautiful and I don't want to write us off or write Jesus off. Because really what Jesus is doing, this whole duality, you can sometimes look throughout all the Bible and find a lot of gray, a lot of, a lot of nuance, a lot of caveats. 
But then there's also a sense where you can look through the Bible beginning to end and see that it is telling a story of duality. You see it right from Genesis. Genesis 1, God creates a world. He creates all things good. And then he puts humanity into a garden. He puts man and woman into the goodness of the garden, and he says to them, one simple choice. You can follow me and not eat of the tree of good and evil. You can allow me to be the one who defines what's good and evil for you. You can allow me to be the one who shows you where to find life and where destruction is, or you can choose to disobey, to choose to eat of the tree, to desire to become God yourself. And by this time, we will define that as one who wants to define their own good and evil. One who wants to define where life comes from and where destruction comes from. He says, if you do that, you will die. Of course, in that moment, as man and woman do eat of the tree, that in the moment that they represent humanity, they represent what we all do. That we say, I will choose my own way. Thank you very much. And when they do that, they don't physically die, but death enters in the second it happens. And all of a sudden, death pervades creation. And so you have not just this sense of like, oh, they were going to die right on the spot, because a lot of people take that and be like, man, like the Bible's not even consistent with itself. It says they're going to die, and like they don't like get poisoned from whatever it was. But it's more of a sense of like, no, like what God was trying to communicate is that everything is not going to work anymore. I mean, God shows up and he reads of them a curse. And a lot of people be like, man, it's so mean for God to curse humanity. He's not cursing them as a way of like, okay, now I put this upon you, though I guess on some level we might be able to argue that. But he's rather, I think in a lot of ways, more just like delivering the news. Hey, now that you've done this, this is what is just true. Because you've entered in a place where you're going to be the ones who are in charge of defining what's good and what's evil, you're going to pick evil a lot, and you're going to pick it against your brothers and your sisters. You're going to constantly divide lines of like, well, there's their people, and here are my people, and I need to look out for my people at the expense of their people. And so it starts with just all of a sudden Adam and Eve pushing away from each other. Hey, he did it, she did it. And then it grows to murders from Cain and Abel, and then it grows to wars and destruction and everything that we lament about our world has grown from just the simple choice of I want to define good and evil on my own and I pick it from my group over yours. And in that moment, you'll see that idea shape the rest of the scriptures. I've been reading through Deuteronomy as of late and uh, it's where most Bible reading plans go to die. Like, you just, like, get to a certain point where you're just reading through laws uh, about what to do with mold in your house, and you're like, I can't care, and uh, I want to. But it's really been beautiful because I regularly take time to remind myself of what Deuteronomy is. I'm sitting there, like, yeah, day after day, just reading through, like, here's what you do with this law, and here's what you do. Like, here's how you set up a city for people who accidentally kill somebody to run to. And you're like, okay, I don't know how to apply this to my Tuesday, but I do know how to apply this biblical narrative to my life. Because what God is doing, what, what Moses is doing, who writes Deuteronomy, is he's talking to the people, the people of God, who were given God's good commands, his good law, his, his sense of, hey, I'm going to define good and evil for you, and I'm going to say this is what it is to, to walk in life, and this is what it is to walk in destruction. And immediately the people of God, upon receiving that, God, Moses walks off of Sinai, they reject it, and they immediately go away. And so God says, hey, I, 
I'm going to bring you to the land I've promised you. I'm going to deliver everything that I said to you, but not this generation. This generation has chosen wickedness. They've, they've chosen their own way, and so they will wander as they've chosen to do. And so they wander around. That generation slowly but surely dies off in the wilderness. And then Moses, right as he comes with all of their sons and daughters, the next generation, he rereads to them the law. That's what Deuteronomy actually literally means. It means second law. And it's a second telling. And that's why you're just like, didn't we read all of this in Leviticus? Which is why you can make it to Leviticus, but Deuteronomy, you're like, I'm out. But you're like, didn't we just go through all of these little nooks and crannies of, of why God is going to say that is an abomination to me or this isn't and, and what they can do and can't do. And some of it like is ceremonial and some of it is more macro and universal. And, and I can't even tell the difference between the two. Didn't I just do this exactly? That's the point. I mean, there was a big gap of about 40 years for them. For you, it's just a flip of a page. And so when you see it, or skipping numbers, I guess. But either way, as you see it, they lay it out, and it's the second telling. Hey, this is all the sons and daughters, and now you have a chance. And after Moses lays out all of the law again before them, and he says, hey, you're about ready to enter the promised land. Don't forget the God who brought you out of slavery, and don't forget he's the one who defines good and evil for you. And so now I testify before God in heavens against you, which is what I say now if I'm about ready to be in a fight. It really just throws them off their game. And then he says, I testify against God in heaven against you that if you choose life, if you choose to follow the law, you will experience joy and peace and this world in many ways, though it still has the brokenness weaved in from humanity, you'll experience all flourishing the way I created it to be. But if you choose your own way, if you choose death, then it's not just death in a, oh, you're going to die in that moment kind of sense. And if you don't get struck down, well, God's not real. It's a, you will continue to sow the seeds of chaos in your life, in your community, in your world. And it will come to a harvest. And then you see Jeremiah, one of the prophets, who long after they'd been in the promised land, I mean, the people are just sacrificing their children to the, the pagan gods of everyone around them. I mean, they, they have gone, not only did they disregard Moses' words in like simple, like binary, like, well, you technically didn't do that way. I mean, they just go to the completely other end. And Jeremiah, I mean, all throughout the prophets, all throughout the poetry, you see them say like, Stuff like, hey, all like sheep have gone astray from the way that God has said to lay out, that he's laid out before them. But then Jeremiah also talks about a chosen Messiah who will come and he will reinstitute this call that Moses gave of choosing a way that leads to life versus a way that leads to destruction. Years and years and years and generations go by and you get a peasant carpenter middle of the countryside healing people, casting demons out, claiming to be a king and not just in a small sense of I own this little mountain that I'm teaching on, but claiming to be the rightful king who owns everything and is ushering in his kingdom and in the midst of his greatest teaching at the outro, which is where we're at by the way in the Sermon on the Mount, this is beginning now, Jesus' 
outro and summing up everything he's taught thus far and bringing us to a point of decision multiple times. He lays out for us, hey, there's a way and it's going to lead to life. It's not going to look like it. It's going to be a narrow gate. It's going to be a bumpy, hard, worse than midwinter in Indianapolis pothole kind of road, which is tough to believe. And it is going to lead to life. It's the same story of Genesis 3, of Deuteronomy, of Jeremiah, and now put forward again by Jesus. And and as he lays it out, he actually uses a metaphor that for us, it makes sense on a certain level. But uh, if we really get into it, I mean, I think people just know clearly what this text basically is saying, so you just kind of like don't really press into it. But you think about like, okay, like where are there gates to roads? And like, you know, there's not like, I've never come to a point, I guess, other than like if they officially close interstate access because of snow, where they actually will gate that off. I mean, there are very few gates. And what he's talking about is if you were to come to a city in that day, if you were to come to just a random city, particularly a capital city where a king would live, you would come up to it and you would start seeing all these roads that would be well-worn paths or maybe even paved paths that would lead to a variety of gates to get into the city. There would be many of them that were very small. They were meant for maybe a single person to go by or maybe if you could fit a camel or a horse or some piece of livestock through with you, but that'd be about it. And they would go mainly down to peasant houses. But there'd be one gate that was the triumphal entry. Because it was created when whoever that king, whoever he defeated, whoever he now became the rightful king of this era, uh, era, whether it was him or his father before him or his grandfather before him, whenever that battle happened and he became the new king, he would send a message ahead to all the people of his new capital city and he would say, hey, make the road straight. Make it smooth. Lower the Rocky Mountains raise the valleys, make one smooth superhighway, and have a triumphal gate for him to walk through, and that would go directly to the palace, directly to his throne room. What Jesus is laying out is kingdom imagery. He's saying lots of people, lots of kings have really wide gates. I mean, they had to be. I mean, it was going through with a whole procession. There would be, you know, women adorning him. There would be camels and livestock and and whatever things. I mean, I'm thinking almost like Aladdin, Prince Ali moment right here with all the crazy peacocks and things shooting out and confetti going crazy. And if you don't know all these references that I'm just lightly dropping here in pop culture, don't worry. They they really don't add too much. But either way, I I just imagine that moment and, and saying, hey, lots of kings have that way to their palace. But if you want to come to my kingdom, if you want to come in and come to my throne, you're going to be looking at the gate that no one else is looking at. It's going to be off the side. It's going to be small and hard to get through. And it's going to be an untended road. Nothing about this is going to scream, this is the king of the universe and the way to come to him. But if you walk along that path, you will find life. 
I want to just get in and lay out some of the layers of this metaphor because I think it's really beautiful. And that's really all I want to do. The dualities that I just pointed out to you moments before, I, I just want to bring out the flavors that Jesus is getting at by, by bringing out those dualities. So I want to talk about this passage in the sense of the wide versus the narrow, the easy versus the hard, destruction versus life, and the many versus the few. And I, I think that's going to bring a lot of notes and a lot of beauty to what Jesus is saying, but, but I'll allow the Spirit to do that work and not me. So let's jump in. Wide versus narrow. Uh, so if you're just taking that analogy and now kind of like seeing for what it is, of course, we just talked about like there were certain gates where you could bring about anything through. You could drive a car through, a whole group of people could go through. Uh, and there were other gates that you'd have to go in. And sometimes if you even had a piece of livestock, a, a, a cow or a camel or a horse or whatever, you would even have to leave that behind because this was only made for a human to slip through, maybe sideways and your stomach and nose scraping rock as you go in. And so uh, this idea of, of Jesus laying out, hey, there is a narrow gate in which to enter my kingdom is with the idea that in order to enter my kingdom, you may have to leave things behind. Packing is always a really stressful thing in our family because my beautiful, amazing wife imagines disaster scenarios happening on our trips that I could never fathom and packs accordingly. And so we eventually had to go to like just the hard, hard case luggage because they're less they don't just explode when you're like sitting on them and still trying to shove t-shirts and stuff like underneath you to zip up. And gosh, the second you open that up, it just like explodes at your location. And then you just have to buy new luggage on the way home. And so uh, we just kind of went to the point where like, okay, we're getting harder case luggage because that is a lot more definitive of what you can get in there. I mean, I, it's not this. It really is not this. But this is how I kind of think of it in my mind. There's a point in which we're like loading the car and uh, she'll be like, hey, should we bring our piano? And I, I think like, Sharon, babe, I don't know the instance in which we would have to bring or need a piano. Like we, our, 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 we're going to our family. They have a piano. Well, but if they're fa- like piano spontaneously combust and we want to use a piano we have room we have room and you're like okay um we're gonna suffer in the gas mileage and and then there's the moment of course that even more stressful when you fly in an airplane because airplane one i mean unless you want to roll roll your luggage out and like roll bank out to go on your trip you're like you got this one little thing uh and even that, they might be like, no, not, not today, sir. So you're really like trying to like make it as small as you possibly can. And you really have to decide what you bring and what you leave behind. And Jesus is laying out a similar concept of saying, hey, there are things that when you come into my kingdom, there's sinful behaviors. There's ways that you relate to this world. There's ways that you are trying to find life that that you are going to give up to enter into my kingdom. And, and let me be clear there. Jesus, in no point, the gospel is not, hey, you need to behave and now you get into the kingdom. That is not what Jesus is saying, and I'm going to get into that clearly as we talk, that, that people enter in the kingdom by grace alone, that I came in a sinful, broken man with all of my baggage yet to be sanctified when I came into his kingdom and was made a son. But he says, hey, as you come through the gate... As you come into my kingdom, 
there are going to be several choices. I mean, it's not just like this one situation that I come in, and, and, but I'm going to regularly choose to leave ways that I want to define good and evil for myself. And, and Jesus is going to say, I, I want you to continually come and learn my ways and allow me to define good and evil for you. Allow me to show you what is life and where you are trying to suck life out of something that can never give it to you. Relationships. Um, I did college ministry for a uh, few years before we launched Soma downtown here. Um, which you always have that moment. It's typically with the girl, but you get it with the guy too. Of They're going for the evangel dating method of... I can maybe date this guy or this girl into the kingdom of God. Um, I don't know exactly how they kind of think they're going to employ the tactic as it goes out. And it's tough, too, because, I mean, my wife and our story, I mean, our story is like we are both not Christians. We both got saved the same time, and then we continued our relationship uh, as Christians. Now, we had a lot of baggage and a lot of things we had to deal with because death and destruction doesn't just go away overnight. You have to continue to wade through the consequences that, that when you sow chaos, it still will have a harvest. And so so many of the people, the, the girls and guys we talked to were like, see, like, you know, you guys got saved together, you continue a relationship, maybe that will happen. And we always say like, yeah, maybe. But until it does, you need to break up with him. You need to tell her, hey, I, I like this relationship. I, I would love to see where this goes, but but we foundationally do not serve the same God of the universe. And it's not just dating relationships. It it's, can often be just friend relationships. It can be, and let me just make one caveat. This does not apply the same for a marriage. If you have covenanted to that person, you have covenanted to that person. And you don't get to be like, well, now I'm a Christian and you stink, Claus. It is a sense of, no, now you are called to prayerfully ask for God to move in their heart. Now, if they're dangerous, if you're finding all sorts of abuse, there's ways to get out. There's ways to, to become safe and allow them, God, to work in their heart. But beyond that, if it's just the simple of like, well, now they're really selfish because they don't love Jesus. Hey, you're called to love them, and that might just be how Jesus is going to sanctify you. But relationships, friendships, uh, again, it's not the sense because, I mean, uh, we're all about like, hey, we want you to be friends with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with people who don't know Jesus, because we believe that we should be friends with people who don't know Jesus. And not just like, oh, I'm friends with you, and you're really a project for me to save and to get on my stat sheet, but I actually love you for you. And I will actually love and care for you if you never become a Christian. And I sit down, and I I laugh and I weep and I sit and go through all of the spectrum emotions with you for you. Jesus did it that way. Some people came to the kingdom. Some people did not. He finished dinner every time. He stayed in relationship, it seems, with a lot of them. But yeah, some of those are going are gonna to just continually say, hey, this doesn't quite fit through a narrow gate. Grudges control, uh, you getting to control your whole life doesn't fit through narrow gates. And that's true not just on a irreligious level, that's true on a religious level. I mean, don't forget the, the narrow road versus the broad road, 
that Jesus is laying out here, when he lays out broad, he's talking about, hey, there are a lot of ways that are on this road, and a lot of them are people in churches who call themselves Christians. Because the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount has really been talking not to pagans, mainly, not to people who are like, hey, stop it with the orgies and the debauchery. It's more of a sense of like, hey, giving to the needy, but you're doing it in a way to be seen by others and not by God. Hey, you're fasting, you're praying, but you're doing it in a way so that everybody would think you're awesome and not in a way that you actually believe that your father cares about you and wants to spend time with you and wants to give you good things and will do it through your requests and and through you humbling yourself before him as a good child does and comes to say, hey, I need my father here. I can't do this on my own. I mean, he's talking with religious people the whole sermon. It seems a really weird moment that all of a sudden he'd flip it and be like, well, now this is all the pagans. Hey, you guys are going in that really broad way, and then here's all the religious people. No, he's saying, hey, a lot of religious people find themselves on this road because they're trying to go towards a king, but they are doing it in a way that they want to control how they get there. They want to come and say, I have earned good favor because I have worked harder than everyone else. And Jesus says that's not how this works. That anyone who comes to the gate has to leave all sense of I've earned it, I deserve it, I'm better than, or I am at least better than that person behind. There is no one who can come to his kingdom with something in his hand saying, see, look what I did for you. That we all come into his kingdom as those, as ones naked and needing clothing, as those starving and needing food. And as he enters us into his kingdom, I mean, then he says, now, moving forward, everything you do, even the cups of cold water you pass out in my name, I will see and I will bless and I will smile upon. I will give you great reward. But you don't do those things to get into the kingdom. The gate is far more narrow than your spiritual egotism. And then it's going to talk easy and hard. So you have wide and area of easy, hard. Um, Dallas Willard, uh, who writes Divine Conspiracy, commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, says wide and easy road is you do whatever you want. But the truth is, is Christianity, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years now. It's really hard. I mean, there's been you're like 10 years. Come on. I've like, <laughs> I've, I've been in Bible studies longer than that. And I'm glad, and I'm really glad you're here. We need more of you. But it is you'd probably be able to affirm all the more. This has been a really hard go of it. I I mean, just take Sermon on the Mount. Like, forgiveness is really hard. I've talked with a lot of you coming out of just like situations like, I'm really bitter at this person. I cannot forgive this past relationship. And I've told you a lot of you the same thing, not because it's a one size fits all, just because it's kind of true of a lot of situations. You should start praying to forgive that person and you should expect it to be a decade or more. I have yet to forgive someone that I did not pray for it over 10 years. I've only been a Christian for 10 years, so you can guess how many people I've forgiven now. Um, and, I mean, there's little things, but, but the ones who are like the real deep scars, the ones who, like, you seethe with bitterness every time you think of them. I mean, it might be more than 10. You could be praying for forgiveness for the rest of your life. Forgiveness is hard. I'm not saying that you won't grow in a sense of, of of love and charity and, and joy towards them. In fact, I think the beauty of some of my situation and what I've seen in others is that prayer actually can do that over time. 
but it's really hard because it's laying down all my rights to get vengeance and justice like I so want and by every other standard deserve other than Jesus saying, hey, in my kingdom, people are going to come and lay down their rights and they're going to forgive people who have no deservedness of it. Loving um, or uh, giving up lust is really hard. I mean, he has that moment where he says like, hey, here's adultery and here's lusting in your heart. I mean, just the sense of like, hey, I can like obey the rule and not have an affair with that person does not make a biblical robust marriage. It does not make a purity story. Jesus is going to say, hey, if you have lust in your heart towards another, you are doing all the sense of using and making that person an object. But but just because you don't act on it, it, you don't have holy ground. It's really hard to continually lay down the desire to find intimacy through cheap means. It's really hard to love your spouse like Jesus. I mean, marriage is beautiful, but it's beautiful more in that it, it pulls parts away from your soul that need to be pulled away through loving. I mean, sometimes it's ups and downs and fights. Sometimes it's just loving them in the mundane. When all of the emotions are much more, I mean, that's where most of life happens. It's not highs and lows. It's more the flat line and continually to choose faithful and love them and pursue them and to pursue joy with them and to press into them to not give up and become the dining dead at whatever age that can happen. We've all seen them at the restaurants. We know what they look like. But to continue to pursue oneness, I mean, I I fail at that a ton. Being honest and vulnerable as Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount is hard. Enemy love by far his most controversial idea. Seeking God's approval and not human approval in our acts like he does with prayer and fasting and giving to the needy. Giving your treasure away. Whatever you're like, this is what I need to just like hold on to and I will have life and peace because of this thing. And, and Jesus just comes and says, hey, that's probably the thing that you need to give away so that you might have treasure in heaven. Whether that be finances, whether that be control, whether that be approval, whether that be this job, whether it be this relationship. I mean, It's not this sense of like God's going to make you give away every good thing. He loves good gifts. He loves to give them. He loves good things. I mean, look at Genesis. It reads like this robust, like God's just going over the top with creating beautiful things for people to enjoy. He loves joy. He loves peace. But there's a sense when it becomes like Gollum in your precious story in the Lord of the Rings. I mean, when you are completely curved in on that and it has just become, this is your treasure, there will always be moments where you're going to have to let it go in big or small ways. And that's really hard. It's really hard not to find lines between how I'm better than everybody else. I mean, Jesus is going to lay out judging, and he's saying, hey, there's always going to be a temptation in your heart to say, this is why I get above the line that they don't. And it's just really hard to continually look at yourself with eyes of humility and see yourself as a broken sinner and see everyone who does wrong against you. Or you can see with laser x-ray vision their sin, mainly because it probably reflects your own, and we can always see it best when somebody else does not you're like, oh, they need justice right now. And... And giving your right to be able to be judge and jury. I mean, these are all really stinking hard. I mean, I, I fail at all of these regularly. There's not like a point. Like, I just always thought, I just like looked at pastors when I was growing up being like, I should, you know, 
the, the good side of being a pastor is at least you don't have to worry about Christianity being hard for the rest of your life. I found that to be very not true. Like, it's, it's basically just a sense of like, now you're failing, and a lot of people see you failing. And at least, yeah, well, either way, I don't have time. Um, I mean, it all can be summed up in verse 12. I mean, that's the whole, like, treat others as you would want to be treated. I mean, that's really beautiful. We love that. We put that on yard signs. I mean, the whole, like, be kind, hashtag be kind movement, we love. But on some level, I just don't think anyone can really do it. I mean, yes, I can be kind on my best days. I can sometimes fight to be kind on my worst days. But in the midst of someone truly justly deserving my wrath, in the moment where not only that, but I'm tired and I'm stressed and I've lost everything, the ability to be kind is just an impossibility to truly be mustered. Uh, I, I, I can live by other rules in life, but it, it's tough to compare myself to Jesus, who in his moment of crucifixion, by those who persecute and whip him and rip his beard out, he prays for them to to be forgiven. I, I don't have that level of hashtag be kind in my soul. And that's what it is to treat others the way that you wish to be treated. It's not with caveats. It's not like unless they're crucifying you at any given moment, metaphorically or actually. And so why go this way, ultimately? Um, I mean, Jesus seems like a really bad salesman. I mean, he's basically laid out the kingdom, and now, uh, I don't know, it's only been on uh, Netflix for like a week or so, but if anyone's seen John Mulaney's uh, latest Netflix comedy hour, it's pretty good. And uh, he has this moment where uh, he's talking about this, uh, this old cop who used to teach them uh, about, like, you know, avoiding uh, pedophiles and, and strangers who are going to give you candy and stuff. And he said, like, this guy was just, like, not like a sugar helps the medicine go down kind of guy. He was more kind of like, brush your teeth, bam, orange juice, that's life. And that's kind of where I see Jesus in this moment of like, holy cow, um, can we at least softball this a little bit, Jesus? I mean, you're not laying out your case strong, but it's because of where he sows both roads lead to. And so destruction in life. Um, You can pursue money. It really helps with temporal happiness. All sociological experiments show the number one difference between those who see themselves as more happy and less happy are those who have more wealth. You can pursue experiences or your own control, you having a sense of I know what's going on and I can control it and nothing happens outside of it, or your uh, approval of everyone. I mean, that is an exhausting one, but you can go for it. And some of you actually might be able to get a little bit further down the road than others. Or you can get your own comfort, cheap peace of I, I... I don't want to do the work of actually having eternal rest in my soul, but I can just surround myself with enough, enough creature comforts just to have peace in this moment and just milk it for as long as I can. I mean, you could do all that, but ultimately, um, it's just inheriting the wind. Oh, you can do this in the church too, by the way. You can come, feel good about coming on Sunday, listen, go. And nothing of your life actually reflects someone who is trying to enter into a narrow gate. I mean, this is not a call for just like, where are the pagans now? 
This is not a call for where are the non-Christians? Where are the skeptics? This is a call for all of us to look at our lives and say like, uh, there are several ways where we are all seeking cheap peace. It's cheap to get and it goes away really quickly. Because, I mean, we can do all the things that I define my own good, I define my own evil, but at the end of the day, just like I'm trying to tell to my son, hey, if you continue to be a man who grows up to think that he has no authority but his own, he can do only what makes him happy and not care for his brothers, not care for his family, not care for others around him, not care for the fact that he is a being who was created to love his God who made him and to love others generously and to give of himself. If I continue just to let him demand and say mine all the time, he He will make a soul that is so incurved on itself that it will not be able to support his peace and his joy and his happiness. He will become, it's like horcruxes. Man, I've got so many random pop culture references in the sermon, but uh, stay with me if you can. Um, Harry Potter fans are with me already, but if you're not, one of the books, basically the villain, they find that he has murdered people, and upon murdering them, he had, I, I don't know at what point he had the option. It just like popped up of like, now do you want to divide a part of your soul into this murdered thing, you know, into this object now that you've murdered this human being? It, I know some of you are like, where is this going? Stay with me. Here we go. Um, he murders people because he wants to divide his soul. And every time he murders a person, he can divide his soul into, I think, eventually seven or maybe even eight parts eventually. Because then he will achieve immortality. You can try to kill him, but his soul is spread out. And I just love that image of the fact it's through doing something like murder that then part of his soul like detaches until he becomes a really spinly, venomous hum- version of a human. That's what sin is. Destruction is not just, oh, you will someday be eternally in hell. It is every single day of your life that you choose to define your own good. You are choosing a lifestyle that breeds destruction in every way. It's why you are finding your soul, even though you're satisfying with, I just want this and I go towards this. It never fully satisfies. It has diminishing returns and eventually it becomes the, the prison locked from the inside. Any point you can flip the deadbolt and walk out, but you have boxed yourself in and decided to stay in bondage. And it's not even, it's like your will can't even make the choice anymore. You see the lock and you can't walk out anymore. So you can continue to walk in a way, and again, in a religious way or an irreligious way, and divide your soul up, and that's what it will do. But Jesus says, hey, there's going to be a hard road. It's going to be hard. You have to regularly decide to repent and to forgive and to, to give of treasure and to say, I will, I will fight to let all of these things be the thing that, that I love and that comfort me and please me. And I will fight to be the one who like owes only out for myself. And I will continually be one who finds life because man, the people who learn to forgive, holy cow, is that life-giving. The people who learn to, I'm not controlled by the church. I don't, like money doesn't control. I mean, we are a culture addicted by money. And you might be like, I don't have a lot of it. Yeah, you have a lot more of it than any other place in the world pretty much. And we just find ourselves like truly, I mean, the fact that like, you know, we're all trying to just like give of it. And even Christians, even the church gives on average 2.5% of their income. That is the average Christian which is lower than what they gave in the Great Depression. 
just says to me, our culture is addicted to the fact that I, I can't give of my resources to love another because I need to look out for me in this situation. And I got to keep up with the Joneses and I have to have upward mobility. I mean, it is a constant pressure on our souls. And those who resist that, who give of themselves to give life to others, it's, I mean, I I'm still have a long way to go to learn to be a generous soul, but man, every time I practice it, I find it brings peace and it brings joy on a level that no amount of going to all these restaurants and breaking them down in my mental blog will ever do. So it's a choice of you can hollow out your humanity. You can trade for a cheap version of the human life, of what it is to be human. Or you can walk into a kingdom where he says, hey, this is how I designed you. And it looks like a really small gate. And it looks like a really bumpy road. And it's going to feel like it because, man, you've just been choosing your own way for so long. But not just like in the future. In this moment, every choice will bring you life. Not like every single time I give money away, I'm going to be met with a Volvo when I come home. But like in a sense of every time I choose to give of myself, I find the real peace. The deep peace and not cheap that will actually provide me the level to be human and really human, the way we were made. A human a lot of times now is a derogatory term, like I'm only human. Man, Genesis 1 and 2, human's like the most beautiful thing you could be. And I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount is just simply a way to be human. I got to end, so I'm going to end with few and many. A lot of times this is the point where we really don't like it. It goes back to this narrow, few will get in. Uh, the problem is, is that the wide road is actually really more narrow if you think about it. And I know that's kind of like the ironic twist, but really, I mean, it's the sense of all the wide road, the broad path. I mean, that's our culture right now. Like all roads will lead to God, right? And the problem is, is like they all on some level say, but you need to be a good person. Like every road that makes you a good person will get you to God. What about the bad people? What about the people that just have no moral clout whatsoever? Because Jesus shows up and he says, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have no way to get to me on their own. Blessed are those who have been for years on the wide road. And I don't care if that means you were the religious person who just judged everyone, or you were the pedophile or sex trafficker or the wife beater or all that we've listed a hundred times in this sermon series to say, hey, even you, I sit down with the tax collectors and even you in this moment can come through a narrow gate and come into the way to life. And I mean, all the, the hey, like the all roads lead. I mean, there's very few of them, but like, hey, so the sex trafficking road leads to heaven. And I'll admit, Jesus is not going to say, hey, you can traffic all day and then just like, you know, sow those seeds of chaos and, and then just come on. No big deal, man. I mean, he's saying, no, the reason the sex trafficker and, and the, the wife beater and the white supremacist and all of them have equal ability to choose life as the religious kid who sat in church the whole time but secretly judged everyone and was prideful is because that none of them come because of their holiness, as we've already said. They all come because Jesus said, I have died and given my perfect life so that anyone who might receive it is now entered into my kingdom. And that's true if you've been on the narrow road or the wide road for maybe just a short little bit and just little, you know, dips into unrighteousness, which I really don't think is possible. But if that's how you view yourself, then fine. 
or if you've been blazing down the broad road for a long time and been a mass producer of chaos in the world. That because of Jesus, because we enter in through him, which is very narrow, we open up to this broad place where now all people are welcome to come into his kingdom. I mean, there's several places in the book of Matthew where it says, hey, not just few, but many people, like go out to the nations. I mean, in the book of Revelation, it shows at the end of humanity that a, a group of people from every tongue and tribe and nation, the broadest perspective of humanity is worshiping before the throne as sons and daughters. Because in the wide way, hey, anybody can get in, but you've really got to be really good to stay in. And in the narrow way, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are, that all may enter in through the narrow gate of Jesus, and it becomes the broadest form of humanity, now worshiping the Father, now entered into the kingdom, now fully human again. I mean, the wide way presents itself as wide, but man, it's a false image. And the narrow way, I mean, yes, there is a sense of it's, it's that Christ is the one who is going to have to be the sacrifice and, and going to be the life that you put forward. But man, that can be offered to anybody. And so if you believe that, you're a Christian. And I invite you to take the meal of communion with us. What we do communion is we have stations around the room. You can tear bread off, dip it in the cup. And and it symbolizes and, and also in a spiritual sense connects you to the death of Jesus and his resurrection, which was the death of your sin, of your old man or woman. I mean, even though I still struggle, like, I'll get out, the, the part of that, the me that still struggles, that Kent is in the grave. He's still struggling for life. But he's dead. And God sees it no more. And that's true of all who come and believe and, and, and take communion in that manner. If you're here and you're not a Christian, um, this is an opportunity for you to consider, is this potentially a more broad path that you've been pursuing is actually leading to death and is actually more narrow than it looks? Or might you enter into what I believe will actually bring you life? There'll be people to pray for anyone uh, on the other side of the pipe and drape at the connect table as we take communion. You can come when you're ready. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would continue to give us not a sense of moving on from a hard word, but a place where this word can allow us to come to points of decision. That, that for even those of us who are very much so in your kingdom, very much so uh, trying to disciple ourselves, that, that the call to daily lay down our lives and pick up our cross and follow you is often one that we find ourselves just drifting away from. But that even in that side, I mean, you have died even for those who continually want to go back to our old way. And you continually, continually are there holding the robe and saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are here. And because of Christ, you are spotless. And so I pray for the Christians in the room, for the non-Christians in the room, to con- truly consider what is bringing them life and what is bringing them death. Because we've seen that in your way of working things, through death comes resurrection and life to the full. 
not just eternally, but now in this moment. I pray that many would find it, many would find themselves returning to it, many people would find themselves clinging to it, because man, I think that will really, it'll just make us a life-giving people, and there's just very few things more attractive to a world that wants life than that. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.